0: section 15 of confessions of an english opium eater this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by martin geeson confessions of an english opium eater by thomas de quincy section 15 june 1819 I have had occasion to remark, at various periods of my life, that the deaths of those whom we love, and indeed the contemplation of death generally, is ceteris paribus, other things being equal, more affecting in summer than in any other season of the year. And the reasons are these three, I think first that the visible heavens in summer appear far higher more distant and if such a solecism may be excused more infinite the clouds by which chiefly the eye expounds the distance of the blue pavilion stretched over our heads are in summer more voluminous massed and accumulated in far grander and more towering piles Secondly, the light and the appearances of the declining and the setting sun are much more fitted to be types and characters of the infinite. And thirdly, which is the main reason, the exuberant and riotous prodigality of life naturally forces the mind more powerfully upon the antagonist thought of death and the wintry sterility of the grave. For it may be observed generally that wherever two thoughts stand related to each other by a law of antagonism, and exist as it were by mutual repulsion, they are apt to suggest each other. On these accounts it is that I find it impossible to banish the thought of death when I am walking alone in the endless days of summer, and any particular death, if not more affecting, at least haunts my mind more obstinately and besiegingly in that season. Perhaps this cause, and a slight incident which I omit, might have been the immediate occasions of the following dream to which however a predisposition must always have existed in my mind but having been once roused it never left me and split into a thousand fantastic varieties which often suddenly reunited and composed again the original dream i thought that it was a sunday morning in may that it was easter sunday and as yet very early in the morning. I was standing, as it seemed to me, at the door of my own cottage. Right before me lay the very scene which could really be commanded from that situation, but exalted, as was usual, and solemnized by the power of dreams. They were the same mountains, and the same lovely valley at their feet, but the mountains were raised to more than alpine height and there was interspace far larger between them of meadows and forest lawns the hedges were rich with white roses and no living creature was to be seen excepting that in the green churchyard there were cattle tranquilly reposing upon the verdant graves and particularly about the grave of a child, whom I had tenderly loved, just as I had really beheld them a little before sunrise in the same summer when that child died. I gazed upon the well-known scene, and I said aloud, as I thought, to myself, It yet wants much of sunrise, and it is Easter Sunday and that is the day on which they celebrate the first fruits of resurrection. I will walk abroad, old griefs shall be forgotten to-day, for the air is cool and still, and the hills are high and stretch away to heaven, and the forest glades are as quiet as the churchyard, and with the dew I can wash the fever from my forehead, and then I shall be unhappy no longer. And I turned as if to open my garden gate, and immediately I saw upon the left a scene far different, but which yet the power of dreams had reconciled into harmony with the other. The scene was an Oriental one, and there also it was Easter Sunday and very early in the morning, and at a vast distance were visible as a stain upon the horizon the domes and cupolas of a great city, an image or faint abstraction, caught perhaps in childhood from some picture of Jerusalem. And not a bowshot from me, upon a stone and shaded by Judean palms, there sat a woman, and I looked, and it was Anne. She fixed her eyes upon me earnestly, and I said to her at length, So then I have found you at last. I waited, but she answered me not a word. Her face was the same as when I saw it last, and yet again how different! Seventeen years ago, when the lamplight fell upon her face, as for the last time I kissed her lips, lips, Anne, that to me were not polluted. Her eyes were streaming with tears. The tears were now wiped away. She seemed more beautiful than she was at that time, but in all other points the same, and not older her looks were tranquil but with unusual solemnity of expression and i now gazed upon her with some awe but suddenly her countenance grew dim and turning to the mountains i perceived vapours rolling between us in a moment all had vanished thick darkness came on and in the twinkling of an eye, I was far away from mountains, and by lamplight in Oxford Street, walking again with Anne, just as we walked seventeen years before, when we were both children. As a final specimen, I cite one of a different character, from 1820. The dream commenced with a music which now I often heard in dreams, a music of preparation and of awakening suspense, a music like the opening of the coronation anthem, and which like that gave the feeling of a vast march, of infinite cavalcades filing off, and the tread of innumerable armies. The morning was come of a mighty day, a day of crisis, and of final hope for human nature, then suffering some mysterious eclipse, and labouring in some dread extremity. Somewhere I knew not where, somehow I knew not how, by some beings I knew not whom, a battle, a strife. An agony was conducting, was evolving like a great drama or piece of music, with which my sympathy was the more insupportable from my confusion as to its place, its cause, its nature, and its possible issue. I, as is usual in dreams, where of necessity we make ourselves central to every movement, had the power, and yet had not the power to decide it. I had the power, if I could raise myself to will it, and yet again had not the power, for the weight of twenty Atlantics was upon me, or the oppression of inexpiable guilt. Deeper than ever plummet sounded I lay inactive then like a chorus the passion deepened some greater interest was at stake some mightier cause than ever yet the sword had pleaded or trumpet had proclaimed then came sudden alarms hurryings to and fro trepidations of innumerable fugitives i knew not whether from the good cause or the bad darkness and lights tempest and human faces and at last with the sense that all was lost female forms and the features that were worth all the world to me and but a moment allowed and clasped hands and heart-breaking partings and then everlasting farewells and with a sigh such as the caves of hell sighed when the incestuous mother uttered the abhorred name of death the sound was reverberated everlasting farewells and again and yet again reverberated everlasting farewells and i awoke in struggles and cried aloud i will sleep no more but i am now called upon to wind up a narrative which has already extended to an unreasonable length within more spacious limits the materials which i have used might have been better unfolded and much which i have not used might have been added with effect perhaps however enough has been given it now remains that i should say something of the way in which this conflict of horrors was finally brought to a crisis the reader is already aware from a passage near the beginning of the introduction to the first part that the opium-eater has in some way or other unwound almost to its final links the accursed chain which bound him. By what means? To have narrated this according to the original intention would have far exceeded the space which can now be allowed. It is fortunate, as such a cogent reason exists for abridging it, that i should on a maturer view of the case have been exceedingly unwilling to injure by any such unaffecting details the impression of the history itself as an appeal to the prudence and the conscience of the yet unconfirmed opium-eater or even though a very inferior consideration to injure its effect as a composition the interest of the judicious reader will not attach itself chiefly to the subject of the fascinating spells but to the fascinating power not the opium-eater but the opium is the true hero of the tale and the legitimate centre on which the interest revolves the object was to display the marvellous agency of opium whether for pleasure or for pain If that is done, the action of the piece has closed. However, as some people, in spite of all laws to the contrary, will persist in asking what became of the opium-eater, and in what state he now is, I will answer for him thus. The reader is aware that opium had long ceased to found its empire on spells of pleasure it was solely by the tortures connected with the attempt to abjure it that it kept its hold. Yet as other tortures, no less it may be thought, attended the non-abjuration of such a tyrant, a choice only of evils was left. And that might as well have been attempted, which, however terrific in itself, held out a prospect of final restoration to happiness. This appears true, but good logic gave the author no strength to act upon it. However, a crisis arrived for the author's life, and a crisis for other objects still dearer to him, and which will always be far dearer to him than his life, even now that it is again a happy one. I saw that I must die if I continued the opium. I determined, therefore, if that should be required, to die in throwing it off. How much I was at that time taking, I cannot say, for the opium which I used had been purchased for me by a friend, who afterwards refused to let me pay him so that I could not ascertain even what quantity I had used within the year. I apprehend, however, that I took it very irregularly, and that I varied from about fifty or sixty grains to a hundred and fifty a day. My first task was to reduce it to forty, to thirty, and as fast as I could to twelve grains. I triumphed. But think not, reader, that therefore my sufferings were ended, nor think of me as one sitting in a dejected state. Think of me as one, even when four months had passed, still agitated, writhing, throbbing, palpitating, shattered, and much perhaps in the situation of him who has been racked as i collect the torments of that state from the affecting account of them left by a most innocent sufferer of the times of james i meantime i derived no benefit from any medicine except one prescribed to me by an edinburgh surgeon of great eminence viz ammoniated tincture of valerian Medical account, therefore, of my emancipation I have not much to give, and even that little, as managed by a man so ignorant of medicine as myself, would probably tend only to mislead. At all events it would be misplaced in this situation. The moral of the narrative is addressed to the opium-eater and therefore of necessity limited in its application if he is taught to fear and tremble enough has been effected but he may say that the issue of my case is at least a proof that opium after a seventeen years use and an eight years abuse of its powers may still be renounced and that he may chance to bring to the task greater energy than I did, or that with a stronger constitution than mine he may obtain the same results with less. This may be true, I would not presume to measure the efforts of other men by my own. I heartily wish him more energy, I wish him the same success. Nevertheless, I had motives external to myself which he may unfortunately want, and these supplied me with conscientious supports which mere personal interests might fail to supply to a mind debilitated by opium. Jeremy Taylor conjectures that it may be as painful to be born as to die i think it probable and during the whole period of diminishing the opium i had the torments of a man passing out of one mode of existence into another the issue was not death but a sort of physical regeneration and i may add that ever since at intervals i have had a restoration of more than youthful spirits though under the pressure of difficulties which in a less happy state of mind I should have called misfortunes. One memorial of my former condition still remains. My dreams are not yet perfectly calm. The dread swell and agitation of the storm have not wholly subsided the legions that encamped in them are drawing off, but not all departed. My sleep is still tumultuous, and like the gates of paradise to our first parents when looking back from afar, it is still in the tremendous line of Milton, with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. End of section 15 Recording by Martin Giessen In Hazelmere, Surrey